Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Endourological Society podcast. Today, it's a great pleasure and, and privilege to have Dr. Noah Canvasser. He's the assistant professor at University of California, Davis, uh, in, Ca- uh, in Sacramento, California, Department of Urologic Surgery. Uh, Noah, welcome to the, to the program, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to your uh, comments today. Brad, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. So uh, on the heels on the heels of our uh, AUA uh, national AUA meeting we had in Chicago last week, uh, we thought it might be good for those people who may have missed the meeting or or couldn't really get access to the last day. Uh, you were uh, invited to give the take home messages for endourology topics, and I know this is quite a it's quite a um, a chore for you because you have to do everything at it's the a last privilege. second. But... It's a privilege, a privilege. To talk. <laughs> we'll we'll call it a privilege then. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think our, our audience will uh, uh, greatly benefit from your expertise. And I, I think one of the things that struck me was, you know, the, the excitement and, and uh, robust um, presence of the topic of intrarenal pressure, how we measure it, how, we, how it affects what we do ureteroscopically and endoscopically. Why don't you, if you could, just spend a couple minutes and talk about what's new and what was presented and, and what we might look forward to. Yeah, I, I, I've been a big uh, proponent of uh, this idea of pressure and its effect on uh, a primarily post-operative infection, um, I, as well as obviously many others, um, but also post-operative pain, which I think we have a little bit more learning to do. Um, uh, but, but one of the uh, podium presentations that I really um, was excited about was out of um, uh, the Royal uh, College of Surgeons and Blackrock Clinic in Ireland. This is Dr. Krogan and colleagues. It was podium uh, 28.9 for those who can go back and look at uh, some of the talks. But they measured um, in vivo intrarenal pressure during ureteroscopy. Um, they used a pressure sensing guide wire that was placed alongside a sheath during intrarenal uh, surgery. And they used sheath, no sheath. They used gravity irrigation. They used manual pumps, they used pressure bags, um, and and very nicely show that, you know, with manual pumps, with pressure bags, compared to gravity irrigation, intrarenal pressure goes up. Um, When you use uh, urethral access sheaths compared to sheathless, intrarenal pressure goes down. Um, And and probably most uh, important is that postoperatively, they had five patients of their series of 120 who had uh, post-operative fevers concerning for urosepsis. And in those patients who had fevers, the mean intrarenal pressure during ureteroscopy was significantly higher. It was almost 100 millimeters of mercury compared to those who had no fevers, which was less than 40. Um, and so again, this speaks to that idea that intrarenal pressure is important when it comes to post-operative infection. Uh, obviously, we've got some uh, more learning to do, um, but I think this was probably one of the most novel um, uh, series to kind of demonstrate that, that effect. And uh, are there, um, on the heels of that, uh, is there any new technology that we have that might be able to, uh, kind of, uh, track this intraoperatively and, and maybe, 
it might affect how we do things or if we see that we're uh, approaching pretty high pressures, are we able to alter and adjust intraoperatively kind of, you know, on the fly uh, uh, alterations that might help the patient's outcomes? Yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and we do now have, have that ability. There's a novel single-use ureteroscope that has an integrated pressure sensor. Um, uh, it's been available in Canada for uh, a bit longer. So they, the Canadian group, um, this is Dr. Ben Chu uh, and his partners, um, uh, including Naeem Bojani, uh, presented their series of, of 50 cases, um, kind of just demonstrating the, the technology and what it can do uh, and the ability to, man- to, to monitor real-time intravenal pressure is is now available um and and they showed very nicely that you know for patients who have a ureteral access sheet uh it has caused a significant reduction in in intrarenal pressure very similar to um what the ireland group showed um so you know and they also kind of anecdotally reported that patients who've got what we quote as you know tight ureters um had higher intrarenal pressures um patients who were pre-stented so you could get a sheath in easier um had lower pressures um, you know, it's interesting that we don't know exactly what, um, safe pressures are. We're still learning. Um, we don't know the time component. You know, if you're above X pressure for one minute, does it matter if it's 10 minutes? Is that worse? Um, you know, we're, what these, what these cutoffs mean, but I think that this, with, with this technology, we are going to learn a, a lot more. Um, you know, for the longest time I've, I've just been. Uh, on the uh, on the uh, sheath bandwagon, just well, if you use a sheath, you're going to keep intrarenal pressures low. But I think it's a lot more than that. Uh, I think obviously irrigation irrigation matters. Um, I'll just make a comment that there was um, you know there's one primary one study. It was published by Olivier Traxer. Uh, I want to say about eight years ago, using the Crows database, that's the clinical research office of the Endurologic Society, uh, that showed that intra, uh, that um, uh, sheaths reduced the um, risk of post-operative infections, um, but that study really hasn't been um, uh, successfully repeated since that time. Um, uh, and and I think that the the missing component uh, is is irrigation um, and and what irrigation does to intrarenal pressure. So hopefully, uh, when we have a pressure sensor, we're going to have to we're going to be able to kind of fill in that gap uh, between sheath and and irrigation. And, and so I, I don't know if you can uh, piggyback on that as well. Um, you know, I was privileged enough to be on the plenary for uh, standard PERC versus mini PERC and kind of, you know, see see some differences with that. And a lot of the data that, you know, that the standard PERC um, um, advocates would would cite are lower pressures. And Absolutely. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if there were a number of um, uh, abstracts that kind of looked at standard, mini, micro, super mini, all these other uh, kind of sizes of perks uh, and pressure, and maybe some of the detrimental effects of that pressure. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't know if anything specifically looked at pressure during during those, but I, I will comment that yeah, that, that is one of the biggest concerns. You know, we do perks on a lot of stones. A lot of them are infectious stones, um, and if you start doing a mini perk on an infectious stone, you know, what is that? Um, what is that infection risk? And it's something that I worry about. It's something why I advocate for, you know, a a standard perk for me. That's a 24 French perk. Um, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of extra or a, a, a whole. Um, you're not going to have a lot of a a reduced risk of, um, say, 
um, uh, bleeding complications or pain complications from a 24 French sheath versus a 17 and a half or an 18 French mini perk sheath. Uh, but you will have that increased intravenal pressure, which is, um, which is going to uh, possibly drive, uh, drive infection in this population. Um, you know, I think the, I'll make another comment about, um, about sheets. Um, uh, you know, the, the sheath versus the scope size, I think there, there is something there. Um, you know, if you have a, say 13 French access sheath and a nine and a half French, um, scope ureteroscopically, uh, obviously there's a, there's a difference between that and a 13 French sheath and a seven and a half French, um, scope. Um, and, and again, how those pressures play in. Um, how those sizes play into pressure, uh, we are going to learn a lot um, again in the in the in the coming months. I think we're going to be able to um, kind of uh, use that data to imply, you know, what's happening during um, during during mini PCNL, um, and thus we can find a way to measure pressure with our with our nephroscope, which you know, who knows, maybe we will. Okay, fantastic. So. Clearly, pressure's uh, big. It's important. It's it's occupying a lot of people's minds. I think the audience needs yeah. to stay tuned for uh, more data. Hopefully, more you know more uh, randomized controlled trials would certainly help our our uh, understanding of this. And uh, we'll kind of stay tuned. Changing Absolutely. gears, a, changing gears a little bit. Um, let's talk about uh, thulium uh, versus kind of high watt holmium and and the whole you know the thulium versus holmium debate. Uh, what kind of data, what kind of uh, things were brought out at the meeting that you might be able to touch on for those? Yeah, I mean, there were number, there were a number of series that were doing comparison trials. And I think I think there's a lot of certain factors at play when you're deciding between the two. The, the data that I was, you know, personally um, uh, most excited about, there was really two studies looking at kind of high-power holmium and, and thulium fiber. Um, uh, we're both in the late-breaking abstract session. Um, so in the thulium topic, um, uh, Dr. Johnson and colleagues from uh, Cornell, Columbia, and I believe Indiana put together a really nice abstract looking at um, efficiency settings um, using uh, thulium fiber laser. Um, I think most of us are still trying to toy and tink with kind of ideal settings to break down stones. And I think with thulium fiber, more so than holmium, the stone composition matters. Um, and, and they kind of demonstrated nicely that. Um, you know, settings matter based on composition. So they did this in vitro. They had seven uh, different human stone compositions, used 13 different thulium fiber laser settings, um, and they showed what was the most efficient as far as, you know, dust production uh, and residual stone volume. Um, you know, in the podcast, I can't obviously give give the graphic, but it is in my take-home talk from, from, the, uh, from the kidney stone session uh, I mean, the, the main take home is that, that 0.2 joules and 100 hertz, which is kind of my standard go-to setting for most stones, works really well for a lot of stones. Um, and that's both uh, ureter and kidney? Um, no, just just kidney. Sorry, just kidney. Um, okay. Because we want to stay 10 watts or lower when we're doing ureter. Um, but for, for renal stones, you can go to that 20-watt setting. Um, for harder stones like calcium oxalate uh, monohydrate, 0.4 joules and 40 hertz was a good setting. Um, and for calcium phosphate and uric acid stones, uh, both dust really well, but they recommended 0.3 joules and 60 Hertz. Um, they did note a lot of charring, which is something that I see as well, Brad, I don't know if you use thulium fiber laser, but I do see a charring effect. And when I do that, I, I tend to try to switch to more of a fragmentation mode and then, and then try to go popcorn. But, 
um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you with some of the settings that they recommended and see, um, uh, see how it changes my practice. Yeah, no, excellent comments. I, I, you know, for, for the longest time, you know, we have, we have these 2,300, um, uh, uh, Hertz, you know, with a 0.001, uh, you know, joules. I mean, there's such a variety of settings. I think it's really crucial that urologists get an idea that while they're working, they have this very, very low threshold to change their settings and, and kind of change things on the fly. I think this, you know, eight and 0.8 kind of just at, you know, out of the, out of the gate, uh, absolute uh, de facto setting just has to leave our minds of, you know, it, you might be lazing for 10 or 15 seconds and you're going to be changing your settings, you know, three or four times in that time, just to make sure you're, you're going to be safe. You're going to get the dusting you want. Uh, you're not going to get the charring and you're not going to get the, any of the injuries that uh, we're, we're sure. seeing. So, sure. Although I will and, say I, I do, when I, when I, when I fragment stones, <laughs> I still have a 0.88 guy, uh, you know, I, <laughs> tried and true and it just, it feels it, it's you know it's, it's a blanket. It's comfortable to be there. So, <laughs> no, that's a good starting point. But you definitely have yeah. to be you know be willing to like go up and down from there. I, yes, I agree, abs- absolutely. <laughs> but you know, I, um, I dust a lot more than I used to because of because of dueling fiber lasering. So yes, I I, I certainly vary those settings. Yeah, no, we're fortunate to have both technologies here, and and um, I, I think there's you know I, I think there's kind of advantage and disadvantage to both. I think at the end of the day, I guess if I close my eyes and you give me a laser, I you know, I think we can make it work again just by changing those settings and really kind of seeing what the interaction of these stones are with the laser, and that's going to really change how we how we approach it. So, um, absolutely. Why don't we talk about uh, this this burst wave lithotripsy? I think maybe if you explain to the audience what it is uh, and and how we can use it, what the future might hold, and what kind of what were some of the abstracts uh, presenting that? Yeah. I'm probably not going to do a fantastic job explaining it, unlike unlike Dr. Michael Bailey from University of Washington, who's I think one of the you know one of the one of the um, inventors founders. He's an engineer, but he gave a, he gave a fantastic podium talk on um, uh, burst wave with the trip seed for human trials. Uh, again, podium session twenty eight, talk number four. Um, mm-hmm. But essentially, what it is is a handheld ultrasound probe uh, that provides short ultrasonic bursts. Um, that can be used to to break up stones, break up stones, to move stones, reposition stones. Um, they have multiple different probes. The probes provide different um, uh, function for skin to stone distance. So obviously somebody who's larger versus smaller, wherever the stone is, you can work deeper, you can work shallower, and also provide different frequencies. Um, and frequency matters, just like you know frequency for, for, for dusting during your radaroscopy. It's, it's the same effect, higher frequencies, Appear to make finer, smaller dust during um, uh, during burst wave lithotripsy. Um, uh, you know, he was demonstrating that uh, you know the the time treatment is typically thirty minutes. You know, when we talk about shockwave lithotripsy, time can change based on your hertz. Um, you know, are you doing a shock a minute, uh, one and a half shocks a minute, uh, not shock a minute, shock a second, one and a half shocks a second, two shocks a second. Um, and how many shocks you're going to use, you know, they, they're typically using 30 minute, um, intervals to actually, um, uh, break up stones. Um, but he kind of alluded to another late breaking abstract, which was kind of the first in human trial. This was a multi, uh, multi-institutional analysis, um, a multi-institutional study, um, presented by Dr. Ben Chu. Um, you know, they coined this now break wave, um, lithotripsy. So still BWL, but break wave lithotripsy. Um, and they had 44 patients, um, 
Uh, the stones that they chose had a mean size of six millimeters and a mean Hounsfield unit of 850. So these aren't, generally speaking, you know, softer stones. This is not your, you know, 1500 Hounsfield unit calcium oxide monohydrate stone. Uh, based on location, a good portion of these stones were actually in the distal ureter. So of the um, <clears throat> 44 cases, 18 of them were distal ureter UVJ. Uh, importantly, because this is first in human trial, um, they had no serious adverse events. Um, they did check CT stone free rates. So 50% were stone free on CT scan, um, but 90% of the distal ureter UVJ stones were stone free. So, you know, that tells you that also, you know, lower stream, lower stone free rate of the, of the kidney stones. Um, if they used a, you know, more common after shockwave criteria of four millimeters or smaller, it's clinically insignificant. They had a 70% stone free rate. So you'd say maybe comparable to what we see with shockwave with the TRIPC. I think actually probably most important is that 50% of patients had no sedation, nothing at all. They were just awake. 36% of patients had minor sedation, thinking like a dose of Toradol. So 86% of people essentially were awake um, during this procedure and they were able to have that success rate. They did do 7% retreatment in 90 days. Um, but this is really um, amazing technology. You know, I, I don't know if it's a good moniker or bad, but you know, shockwave in your pocket. I mean, that's you know, literally what this this is kind of um, getting to be. But I don't want to you know discredit what I mean. This is this is this is this is different than shockwave. So you know, it, it, it's 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 its own thing. It's just um, really uh, really amazing, and I think we're going to see a lot more uh, of this technology in the future, and the ability to have this type of technology in practice in the ER, you know, I think it brings up questions we don't have to get into today, but you know, who's going to be using it? Our, our ER physician is going to use it. Our IR mm-hmm. physician is going to use it. Radiology is going to use it and everybody used it. Family practice, you know, um, uh, but, uh, but maybe, you know, there's so much stone disease out there. My practice is, is, is so busy that, you know, maybe other people need to help us a little bit and this might give them that opportunity. Again, I, I might be I might be crossing the line there, but um, you know, we're 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 gonna we're gonna see we're gonna see. And to clarify, there's no commercially available um, technology yet, uh, as of yet, for this. Not that no, I don't think people can can buy this yet. But I but I but I do not know, and I uh, <clears throat> don't don't hold me to that. But I think um, you know it's not too far away. It's yeah. really not too far away. So. So why don't we end on um, kind of a, a little um, kind of less device oriented, less mechanical, less, uh, uh, you know, but, but more kind of social responsibility environment. Um, there's actually a lot of uh, hubbub about climate change and, and how it Im- uh, impacts stone disease and maybe even 24 hour urines, how it's affecting chemistries. Maybe just touch uh, uh, for our last topic today, kind of this social responsibility of endourology, perhaps the environment cost uh, underserved maybe even the uh, you know the single use uh, impact on on environment and uh, uh, and so on let's hear what you have to say about that yeah i think one of the most impactful plenaries um that we had was on let's see it was it was the 29th in the afternoon i believe um this was dr dr lowry gave a fantastic presentation on on kind of our environmental impact and what we use um yes yeah, single use is a, is, is obviously here to stay um it's it's obviously helpful in a lot of different realms um you know not just scopes but we're also talking you know wires and sheaths and laser fibers and drapes and everything that we use but you know urologists are um innovators 
Um, we are forward thinkers. Um, I mean, that's why I think a lot of the reason why many of us join this, join this specialty. Um, but the environment is, um, is struggling and, um, we, we need to try to be leaders in the surgical fields to try to uh, make this better. So I'm hopeful that we can, you know, emphasize, you know, uh, not only recycling, which sometimes doesn't solve a whole lot, um, but, you know, reprocessability and using, um, materials that, that have a lower environmental impact. Um, it, kind of in the similar um, spirit, um, Dr. Friedlander, David Friedlander from UNC, gave a really nice talk on kind of costs and value. Um, you know, healthcare healthcare costs are skyrocketing. I'm, I am not an expert in the area, but even I can tell that it is just insane how much how much uh, how much our work costs. Um, obviously, obviously, we try to provide as much value as possible, but can we improve? our care at a, at a lower cost. Um, and that, that is value. So, you know, it's something to think about. Um, you know, we spend a lot on, on, you know, different technologies and different, um, devices and, uh, you know, trying to find ways to optimize that. And then the last thing I'll, I'll highlight and, and perhaps the most important thing, um, you know, Dr. David Bing from UCSF gave a really nice plenary on, on disparities and access to care. Um, there were a couple other posters as well that that really kind of showed this that you know we try to um, uh, get the best access, best care for every single patient, but there are populations that don't have that. And you know mm-hmm. we need to be a little bit more active in trying to um, make sure that our our most at risk population, our uh, our least served get 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 that great care and great access. So uh, you know he highlighted some some. Uh, some thoughts I, I won't be able to um, quite clearly replicate what he said, but I encourage you to, to listen to his recorded lecture um, again from the pottery session. Sure. Well, great. Uh, Noah, thanks very much for uh, those who did not attend the AUA and, and uh, you know, can't get access to them. I uh, hope this uh, at least filled a little bit of a, a void for education in the endourology space. Um, Noah, again, uh, assistant professor at UC Davis in Sacramento, California. Uh, Department of Urologic Surgery. We appreciate your expertise and always value your insight and comments. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Brett, for having me. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.